Break out your wireframes and heat up those Git repos. We're ready to tackle topics ranging from accessibility to front-end design, user experience, and beyond. You're listening to the Drunken UX Podcast with your hosts, Michael Feenan and Aaron Hill. Hey everybody, thanks for joining us. You're listening to episode number 97 of the Drunken UX Podcast. We're going to be demystifying web vitals and page speed and performance issues. We've got special guest Eric Runyon joining us all the way from Notre Dame this evening. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm your host, Michael Feenan. I'm your other other host, Aaron, and I just learned tonight that Notre Dame is in South Bend, Indiana, I, and I, not in Chicago like I thought it was. I learned that it was there <laughs> and not in Nevada, so... Uh, <laughs> I don't know what that says about me. <laughs> I, I lived in Indiana for a long time, and I I don't know why I always thought that Notre Dame was in Chicago. I didn't realize it was Indiana. Well, if you want to come make fun of us, which I highly encourage you to do, um, you should come and uh, poke at us on Twitter or Facebook at slash Drunken UX or Instagram at slash Drunken UX podcast. You can also join us on our Discord at drunkenux.com slash Discord. Uh, make fun of us, put us down because we don't know where colleges are. And, uh, you know, there's just, there's, there's nuggets of like trivia that if you never have to handle it in your life, you just don't know. And I guess I just never needed to know where Notre Dame was. (laughs) Before we get too far into things, if you are enjoying the Drunken UX podcast, be sure to run by our sp- sponsors over at High Ed Web. Now, you have heard us talk about High Ed Web many times. They put together a fantastic annual conference every year for higher ed web development professionals, marketers, accessibility experts, and a whole lot more. Their conference this year is all online. It is October 4th and 5th, and their keynote presenter is Shannon Kaysen from NPR. So be sure to check them out. You can go get registered by visiting drunkenux.com slash H-E-Web. 21. That's drunkenux.com slash H-E-Web 21. Um, Aaron, I need you to save me from my trivia black hole and uh, share with me what it is you are imbibing this evening for this conversation of performance. Um, and nothing interesting. I just have uh, Coke, and by that I mean Coca-Cola. Cola. Uh, tonight. Yeah, I'm, actually, I need to make a, ru- a run to the store soon, but I'm traveling this weekend and haven't had a chance to go to it yet. So, I I have a, a cola as my standby drink. I'm a Pepsi man for the most part, so I've got that <laughs> kind of to the side. I am still trying to uh, clear space on my bar, so I'm I'm not going to finish it tonight, but I'm going to put a pretty serious dent in it. I've got the end of my bottle of uh, Mortlock 16, hmm. uh, so that's uh, it's a Speyside Scotch. I I love this a the bottle's beautiful, um, but it's also known as the Beast of Dufftown. <laughs> And so I, I, it's just, I feel kind of like it's my, my, uh, my Simpsons scotch, you know, yeah. like I, I don't know why, but it's man of, it, it has about the best nose of any scotch. Um, mm. very floral, very fruity. It's like when you pour it in the glass, you know, you have poured a glass of scotch. Mm. Um, flavor wise, it's like not anything like crazy out of this world. Like it's not bad. It's not like great. It's good. It's enjoyable. Um, very sweet. It's you know it is a space side, so it is sweet. Um, but I I'm hoping this is the distiller's dram edition, six, the 16 year. Um, I'm hoping I can find another bottle of it because it is good enough to keep like on the shelf. So we'll see we'll see where that goes. Um, Eric, I'm gonna turn to you now. You lifted a glass, and I 
at first thought, are you drinking tea? I see something in the glass. That's what yeah. I can tell. So this is an it's uh, an amber rum from a local distiller, um, actually here in town. So this is sort of an hmm. old-fashioned inspired mix that I made tonight. So it's the amber rum. Uh, instead of using a sugar cube, I'm using uh, Michigan maple syrup. Grabbed some mint out of my garden and then a couple splashes of bitters and some soda. Hmm. And it actually turned out pretty well. I'm not going to lie. I don't know that it sounds super appealing, but at the same time, I'm thinking rum and, and like maple syrup. It actually turned out better than I thought. I could give that a shot. <laughs> like, um, I've got a, a bottle. I haven't. In fact, that maybe I'll have that for the next episode if I'm if I remember. Um, I've sure. got a bottle of Ron Zappa XO. Um, so that's the and, mint that uh, you're seeing in there. Oh, the mint is what I was seeing. Yeah, I thought maybe it was whiskey stones. All I could see was like something. Um, so Erica, uh, the voice, the, the third voice that you're hearing is Eric Runyon. He is the technical director for marketing communications at Notre Dame. Um, he is also, as we have referred in the past, he is slide number four on should I use a carousel.com. Um, thanks to his, some of his research, uh, they broke down just how little people use the slides on carousels. And so we have referred to that, and many people have referred to that research over the years. Um, a, welcome to the show, Eric. Uh, <laughs> I want to talk for just a, a quick second, though, because, you know, technical director... Techn- and if I can't, I can't talk. Mortlock is taking over my tongue. Um, <laughs> technical director for marketing communications at Notre Dame sounds impressive. I have no doubt it absolutely is impressive. But I also doubt that you started your life that way. <laughs> um, I just wanted to ask, like, how, like, what was, what was it that got you into like web development, web communications, and like, where, what did you start out as that got you to where you are now? Yeah. So like you said, the title's pretty long. Um, but in all honesty, it just means a developer who's been there way too long. <laughs> <laughs> so getting started anyway, I started learning web development in 95 as an undergrad in college. Uh, so my first text editor was Pico in a Unix terminal. Oh, yeah. Um, and so my, the first websites I was building my, uh, were for my sisters who were overseas doing mission work. So they would send me their newsletter. I would take the newsletter and turn it into web pages. So that way we could oh, wow. get it out to mm. more people. I don't know if there was such a thing as professional <laughs> web developers at that time. I was going to school for, uh, um, it was the music technology degree program. So once mm. I got out of college, my first job was doing audio design for computer games for a oh, company cool. in, Ar- in Ann Arbor. Like like chip tune type stuff and no, and it was like full on sound design, audio. Oh. We did a lot of Tonka games, um, Rocky and Bullwinkle, oh. and stuff like that. Oh, Ooh, super gee, cool. Rocky. That was actually pretty good. Thank you. <laughs> so after that, I was only in that job for like ten months um, before going on to a, a job that was more graphic design, a little bit of programming, but then I also managed the company's website. And that was definitely the days of font tags, you know, putting color mm-hmm. as a color attribute in line. Yeah. Anytime you wanted to update a font, you're finding and replacing in the document. So after that, I was doing, believe it or not, I was doing wall border 
design, like color matching and designing wall borders for RVs. Um, <laughs> like like the stuff you put on the the roof or like the ceiling along the edge. wall. It's sort of like in between the lower yeah. wall and the upper wall. Yeah. So that okay. was the that was the business's primary um, primary business, but they also needed someone to build their first online catalog, which they did not have. So as part of the process of hiring me in there, they were since I had web experience, they're like, "Would you be able to do this?" And I'm like, "I've never done it before, but I could certainly learn it." So I spent that job when I'm also doing the the design work, learning PHP and MySQL in order to build them an online catalog. And and I quickly realized that that was the part of the job that I really loved was when I was working in the web stuff, not when I was doing the design work. So after a couple of years there, I started looking for my first full-time web development job. But I, I really liked the work that the Notre Dame web team was doing. Um, so I tracked them down and started applying for their open position. So when one of their developers left, I applied and got in. So... That was in uh, July of 2017, and I've nice. been through been through um, probably four different roles technically with the team since then. Uh, eight different offices, um, but still the same team the entire 14 years. Very cool. Okay, we're gonna see how this plays out. Uh, we wanted to talk about page performance. Now, this is a subject we have covered in the past, but we wanted to take a slightly more specific dive into a couple areas, um, specifically as, apply, as it applies to Google, and those are what is page speed and, and why should I care about it as a developer? And then where we're really going to dig in are these new things, the, this new deal that, that Google has decided is going to be important for the future, which are web vitals. Uh, think of them kind of like just like any other vital in, in medicine or something like that. They're sort of a baseline set of metrics that help elaborate on how good is your site? How fast is your site? Um, how usable is your site? The interesting thing about web vitals is this notion that they are kind of using them as a proxy measurement for usability. Uh, they've decided that these three different areas represent key things to making sure your site is usable. So we're going to dig into those, what they mean, how they affect your site, and how you can measure and improve upon them. Um, yeah, and it's definitely relevant right now because Google is in the process of making Core Web Vitals part of the uh, search algorithm. Yeah. So if you have a fast site, it ranks well on mobile then you're more likely to have your content boosted in Google properties like Google News and whatnot, uh, especially if your news articles meet uh, Google's uh, formatting requirements. So they were planning on rolling it out earlier this year, um, but there was a slight delay. So it's actually, I believe, in process right now, and it's supposed to be in place by the end of August, I want to say, based on the most recent uh, article I've seen. By the time you're listening to this episode, it may very well already be out and, and rolling at that point. <laughs> so the the one phrase that a lot of people will probably be familiar with is this phrase page speed. Not in the abstract sense, but in the sense of the actual thing that Google creates called page speed. Um, and you can get the page speed insights uh, report 
in the, I think it's in the Google Search Console. Um, page speed, for what it's worth, uh, this is sort of an always moving target, right? Um, if you look into how things are uh, measured and, and how you're scoring on different things, you can usually go into your web developer tools in Chrome, run Lighthouse, and we'll talk about Lighthouse here in a bit, um, and get a number of scores back, basically. Um, now, what page speed does has changed over time. And now, correct me if I'm wrong on this, Eric, but isn't page speed now basically just a combined abstraction of all of the Web Vitals scores? Isn't it just those combined and, and sort of remuxed? Or am I thinking about that wrong? I'm not sure if they specifically refer to it as PageSpeed. There's a, PageSpeed Insights is one of the tools that they provide that's based on, um, based on Web Vitals and Core Web Vitals specifically. Um, you can find them, like you mentioned, in the Chrome, uh, Chrome DevTools in the Lighthouse tab. And we, we probably should get into how the scores on each of these tools are generated. Um, sure. Because you have things like Lighthouse, which are, are strict, strictly lab data. So that means it runs on the machine at that time using particular specs. Um, and it's not representative of real user experience. Right. So if you go to PageSpeed Insights, the nice thing about that one is it will give you the lab data. But if the source domain that you are testing has enough traffic, they will also give you a breakdown of some field data. And that is data that comes from the Chrome user experience. It's Crux. That's their Crux data, C-R-U-X. <laughs> Um, and so that's collected only from Chrome browsers by people just naturally uh, navigating sites and is not any Chrome user. So like if you have, you, there's, um, there's a setting in Chrome that allows you to submit, you know, share your, your browsing data with Google. And if you have that turned off, it's not going to use your data. But if you do, then it goes into that crux report. And that's that's the actual field data. That's real users using a site. So one thing you may notice if you use something like PageSpeed Insights versus Lighthouse, you'll see field data, but then you'll also see lab data. And sometimes the values in those can be very different, partly because they're they're measuring some slightly different um, slightly different things. So with lab data you can't measure when a user interacts with a site. So um, one of the core web vitals is first input delay. Yes. Uh, I suppose we should list out what those are first. So you've got largest contentful paint, you've got first input delay, and then you've got cumulative layout shift. So you'll see all of these as acronyms very frequently, and there yes. are more than these as well. But anytime you see something referring LCP, FID, CLS, that's what Eric just described. And there's, like I say, there are several more than that as well. Yeah. Um, but we should probably take a step back and, and look at some of these core web vitals on their own first. Yeah, yeah. So, well, you, you mentioned, uh, let's, let's start with LCP, right? Um, not SCPs, those are weird and creepy. Um, LCP is, you mentioned, largest contentful paint, right? 
This is, uh, and I'm going to quote um, Google on this as far as what that means. They say LCP is uh, on the metrics report is the render time of the largest image or text block visible within the viewport relative to when the page first started loading. So it's basically when is the biggest thing that you can see finally available from millisecond zero to millisecond whatever. So if if you um it's it's easier to see these sort of things if you're looking at a um at a film strip of a page loading if you use something like um uh webpagetest.org and you can look at the film strip. So um, Lighthouse in Chrome actually will give you one as well. Yeah. So if, I if, wish you could blow it up. It's always so tiny. It is it's hard tiny, to see what's it's hard to see what's actually going on in those. Um, um, GT Metrics, I think, does it as well. And theirs, I think, is a little more like they, they overlay the bars of each element um, as it renders out. And I think that's kind of nice. Okay. So um, as we start to dive into this, and one thing I want to make clear is I am not a performance professional. There are people whose <laughs> job is performance all day long, and they know this stuff inside and out. I'm just a performance geek. It's... Part of my job is something that if given my druthers, I will wander off and play with performance instead of something else that I probably should be doing. Um, so I, I definitely dig in and try to learn as much as I can. But if if I get anything wrong in here, feel free to jump into Discord and you can yell at me too, along with the other two. Yeah, yeah, always. Correct us if we're wrong. Um, we're a couple guys, so that's all right. So for largest contentful paint would be... Um, like if you think of your standard homepage, it'd be like the hero image, especially if it's if you're on mobile and it's taking up, you know, two thirds of the screen or three quarters of the screen. Yeah. Um, previously, we had metrics uh, such as like DOM content loaded. That was something mm. that we often used as a metric for to know how quickly a, a page was rendering. Yeah. The advantage that LCP has is that it actually focuses on what the user actually sees on their screen. Um, so it's more of a user centered, centered metric. And so the way that the LCP works, and it's the same with all these core web vitals, they each have three essential scores that they can get. Um, and they're good needs improvement or uh, poor. And so for largest contentful pain, if your page loads in two and a half seconds or less, like the largest contentful pain happens in two and, two and a half seconds or less, then it's considered good. Right. Um, between two and a half and four, your uh, needs improvement and anything above that is is poor. Um, and so as far as largest contentful paint goes, it's it's important to optimize for getting um, the most important thing on your screen up as quickly as possible for your users. It, it's this line and you mentioned like our events that we have access to. Right. So DOM content loaded. DOM content loaded is a very programmatic, opaque black box, behind the veil kind of thing. Developers get it. We understand when that fires, why that fires, but a user has no clue. And the perception of the page, and I think that's going to be one of the, sort of the running themes of web vitals and, and how they're sort of aligned with usability is they're tied somewhat to this notion of how how does the user, how quickly does the user perceive your website? Right. You can make something feel and look very fast, even if it's still very busy in the background doing things. And this is one of those examples. You can get something painted to the page very fast, even if you're still 
binding events to different things in the DOM. You're still rendering out dynamic content or making API calls. All of that stuff can still be happening, even though to the user, they think it's done. Right, exactly. And I I guess the overall theme for Core Web Vitals is user experience. Like, how can we make this better for the end user? It is, I think, worth pointing out, too, um, LCP is very narrowly scoped. Um, It's not just anything on your page. It specifically applies to image tags, um, Mm -hmm. image elements, video elements, um, any element that has a background image that is loaded via a URL function. Um, This is opposed to like a CSS gradient Mm -hmm. or like a uh, a data encoded um, image in your CSS. Um, And it can also apply to any block level elements that contain any text. So we're talking paragraph tags, you know, div, things like that. So it's there, there is a very sort of limited scope as to what will affect an LCP score will trigger an LCP score. Um, so thinking about that, we've got a limited set of things. We know we need two and a half seconds. That's not fooling around. I mean, that's fast. (laughs) Um, you know, what, what's, uh, what do we figure the average load page uh, time is these days? It's like eight seconds, nine seconds. Um, something in that area, two and a half seconds is super fast. (laughs) Yeah. What um does the con does the clock starting begin when like when the request comes back or when the request is issued? Like what when do you when you start the clock? The the clock starts, I think, from the minute the browser receives its response and starts working. So it's when it's when the response hits the browser, not when the browser issues the request initially. I oh, I see what you're saying. Um honestly I don't know the answer to that, and I'm not gonna I'm not gonna fake it. Um I don't know. I would have to, I, I would presume it's probably because most things, you know, network wise usually happen at the request time. Right. So like, because if you're sitting there waiting that, that wait time factors into any, you know, performance metric normally. So, yeah, I love that question. I'm making a note of that. (laughs) I'm asking because if we're measuring the contentful paint of the page speed itself, then it should just be like, okay, you have, Browser, you have the information you need. Go, and then how? Like, how does it do at that point? If you factor requests, then we're also factoring in like server and host speed. Well, I, I but I think that that absolutely matters um, because well, it's yeah. all infrastructure, right? And the user. Here's the thing, and to go yeah. back to this notion that this is all about UX and usability, the user has no clue which part of that is slow, and they don't care. Right. Right. That that would be so that that certainly would be my assumption on that. And if anybody knows offhand, uh, feel free to uh, shoot us a tweet and verify that. But I, I would bet that that's got to be from the minute the network traffic starts, um, the clock starts. And, that would be my guess. Um, if yeah. if I wanted to be less lazy, I could probably just open up my network tab right now and load a page and just literally watch it load and, and know the answer. But I feel like that's a safe assumption um, at that point. Yeah. And as far as. Two and a half seconds being fast. I keep a list of 1,769 high red homepages that I like to test against just to, just for the fun. Yeah, of course. We all, I mean, I keep that in my wallet. And so <laughs> I ran, actually ran those through, um, there's a tool called Speedlify by Zach Leatherman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so I ran all of those sites. I ran them all through Speedlify and... Out of all of those sites, 
0.51% scored good on oh my God. performance. Hmm. What can we do then? So if we want to get our LCP score down, let's say I've got a four-second LCP, and I'm like, man, I'm right on that edge of being poor. I'd like to get that closer to that nice green number. What can we do to improve our largest contentful paint? So to improve LCP, it's pretty much all of the same things you would do just to improve overall page performance, just with a slight focus above the fold, quote unquote. Um, we all know right. that that's sort of a, <laughs> not a real thing, but it's, it, it's, it's a, a bit antiquated. <laughs> it's, it's still something that you can sort of think about when you're, when you're creating a website, especially when you want to focus on LCP. One of the things though about that is, even though the, the fold is a myth, what is or is not visible to the user isn't. And now that we have the Intersection Observer API, we can do, do clever little tricks like say, you know what? Let's not try to request all the images that aren't visible to the user yet. We could defer those or right. you know, lazy load lazy them loading the so that helps. Those, yeah. So then those aren't competing for HTTP requests and bandwidth for that user, especially if they're on like a bad mobile uh network or something like that yeah exactly so i'd say first thing you want to do is make sure that you start with the uh, server request itself um you know you, you're the longer your server takes to getting around to sending something back to the client that's going to affect your score that's time that the user's sitting there and nothing's getting painted to the screen once you do send data back um try to keep your initial payload small so like your HTML, if you can keep that below 14 kilobytes, um, it can do it in a single trip and not have to do multiple round trips to get your HTML. Uh, keep your Could you expand on that? I, I think I know what you're referring to, but could you elaborate? Yeah. So um, when data is sent uh, across the network, it's chunked. And you can see this if you look in a web page test. Uh, you'll see colored bars on on the uh, individual requests and where you'll see darker this is in the network tab, right? The yeah. network tab of web developer tools. Yeah. Yeah. So if you look at like the HTML request, um, you'll see lighter and darker bars. And what those are is it's like each of those chunks, it's like downloading and then waiting and downloading. So there, the file is coming down in pieces. And so for your HTML, your initial response of just your HTML should be under 14 kilobytes. That allows it to go in a single burst, um, and it's not doing multiple trips to download that HTML file. Which is huge, mind. Like, that that's 14 kilobytes uh, gzipped as well. So yes. usually you compress web pages. That's called gzipping. Um, so uh, the HTML itself can be, you know, easily four, five, ten times that size before gzipping thank you for elaborating that because I, I think this is like a really unintuitive like it's not an obvious thing right like there's not there's nothing in the browser or in the code that implies some kind of like 14 kilobyte boundary um but it's like it's an excellent idea for like optimizing your page performance by the way i i looked up the thing earlier about when page loading starts and i i don't have like this isn't my final answer but what it looks like um, is they're using the the time origin value of the page, and according to the W three C time origin, uh, if the global object is a window, 
time origin must be equal to, and there's a series of options, but the first one is when the browsing context was first created. And the browsing context is uh, like the document object creator. And so I guess if I had to guess just from what I've read literally in the last five minutes, um, I think that maybe it's when the document object node is first available. So I would guess like when the page starts loading, like when it first gets that initial burst of HTML back. I could be wrong. And if anyone out there like does actually know the specifics on this, I would really appreciate knowing. Sorry, just to fake it. Force your uh, force your network to be slow, and just see if the yeah, what the score is that comes back. When oh it's yeah, to be slow. <laughs> yeah, that's true. A few things, uh, some other stuff you can do. I think right is and Eric, uh, you're absolutely right when you say like yeah, just the stuff, right? The stuff you do to optimize the site is what will help you here. Make sure like if your masthead image is a photograph, don't send over like an uncompressed TIFF or something. As a background mm-hmm. image, you know, like yeah. make it a JPEG, <laughs> cut it down to like seventy percent, you know, quality. Like make don't it reasonable. A, don't use a TIFF on your website, regardless. Well, yeah, don't, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, any anytime we do a hero image, you know, the large banner images or whatever, we do it minimum three different sizes, um, in order and send it down as a source set, so the browser can choose right. a smaller size. So. Um, also, do not put lazy equals loading on your hero images. Anything that may appear in that theoretical above the fold, you don't want to have lazy loading on that. Um, it needs to be prioritized. Yeah, keep it off. Also, another thing that I've seen on a lot of higher ed sites is maybe the HTML is gzipped, but quite often things like CSS and JavaScript are forgotten. And so you may hmm. be getting you know, over easily over a hundred or 200 K worth of JavaScript downloading. That's not compressed. And those are the, yeah, the HTML is nothing by comparison in those cases then quite frequently. Yeah. And if you can, any JavaScript that you can defer, uh, do that as well. Um, Quite often you don't need JavaScript for rendering unless you're doing some kind of, uh, you know, client side rendering, which I have feelings about. Um, but you know, any JavaScript that you can defer or, you know, CSS that's not necessary for initial paint, you can defer that as well. Um, you know, just, just really focus on the things that get that first, uh, that first paint going, especially the larger part. And the, the other way to get that happening as quickly as possible is to make sure you're leveraging caching and make sure you're leveraging a content delivery network, a CDN. Mm-hmm. Um, if you've got a bigger site or a site that you know doesn't have a lot of resources you can if you can offload html and imagery to really fast networks that have it pre-cached at nodes close to the user these are all things that make sure that person gets that information as fast as possible so that it can get painted as quickly as possible yeah i'd say the only thing to be careful about that is how many domains you split up your content um you know back in the http1 days we would I see a lot of sites splitting up resources over multiple domains in order to get more resources downloading at one time. And with HTTP2 these days, that's actually an anti-pattern. As many things as you can keep on your primary domain, the faster. So especially if you could serve your HTML over uh, CDN, um, that's even better. Um, 
But if you do have to have like multiple domains to serve something down, you can do a pre-connect in the uh, head of your document to get that initial uh, connection handshake going sooner before the uh, resource is actually found by parsing. Okay. Web vital number two. This one is actually one of the weirder ones. It's probably the one I like the least because it's a little confusing, shall we say. That's first input delay. FID. Um, again, from Google, they say FID measures the time from when a user first interacts with the page, i.e. when they click a link, tap a button, or use a custom JavaScript-powered control, to the time when the browser is actually able to begin processing event handlers in response to that action. Um, now, this, Eric, you kind of laid the groundwork for this, right? That when you look at things like the Insights Report, you have access to two sets of data in some cases. Some of it is the lab information, and then the others are the the user data and FID is very much meant to be the, the user side of this. Um, this one's weird. Right. So as I mentioned earlier, between the synthetic, like the lab data versus the, uh, rum data, first input delay does not exist in the lab. Um, okay. It doesn't exist. No, it does not. Okay. You only get this in, uh, specific tools. Um, so like the crux report, uh, you'll get it back in PageSpeed Insights, uh, Google. What it's Google? It used to be Google Webmaster. What is it called now? Oh, is it just a Web Console? Go- now it's just Google, Google Web Console Search Console. Yeah, Search Console. Yeah, I, so man, I had Console stuck in my head. Yeah, so Search Console reports on these as well. But yeah, so when you're dealing with lab data, where it's all synth- synthesized. Instead of first input delay, you would be looking at something more like uh, time to interactive or total blocking time instead of first input delay because they're the closest uh, corollary uh, metrics that they have that, you know, is similar to first input delay because you can't really uh, fake first input delay because it actually requires a user to interact with the page, whether it's clicking or tapping. Um, Scrolling doesn't count. so, yeah, so when you were dealing with just Lighthouse in the browser, um, you're not going to get first input delay. But but you will get TTI or TBT. Correct. Just let us know if we're throwing too many acronyms at you guys, listeners. Uh, this I, I told you, yeah. a lot of them out there for this episode. Yeah. You guys tell us now before that we finish recording. So oh, yeah. Shout it really it, loud at your listening device. If we finish recording, you're out of luck. If if we haven't if we haven't done it, then you haven't said it loud enough. So it's really loud. Really One nice. of the things I find really interesting about first input delay, Google says like to have a good, you know, a good score, the the first input delay has to be a hundred milliseconds or less. That's one tenth of a second. Um, the reason this is kind of interesting, at least to me, is that's only twenty five percent of what they call the Doherty threshold. Um. Which, this is like an old school computer science type concept that goes back decades and decades, which is this notion that for something to appear immediate, simultaneous to the user, the reaction of the system has to be 400 milliseconds or less. And so it was interesting to me that Google's like, oh yeah, but to to rank good, you have to be under 100 milliseconds. Because I feel like 
the user can't tell. <laughs> At least in theory, the user shouldn't be able to tell. So I don't know what to make of that entirely. Uh, I don't know, Eric, if you've got any thoughts on that, but that's just, it, that just struck me as funny anyway. Do you remember back when the early days of responsive web design, there was a JavaScript library called FastClick? It wasn't really a library. It was more of just a, a function. Um, I do not recall FastClick. So what it was was that you could specify in the initiation of the JavaScript which selectors um, would... Because like by default, iOS would add, I believe it was a 300 millisecond delay on any touch interaction to make sure you weren't double tapping to like zoom in right. the page. And so what FastClick did was it would move that delay and immediately execute whatever it was that the person was tapping on to remove that 300 millisecond delay because it was noticeable to users. You know, that, huh. that very minor delay that, that Safari had in place was noticeable. So this was a uh, methodology to get around it. And yeah. it's not, Safari has changed the way that works, so it's not necessary anymore. Um, but that was something where it was, you know, it's a very small amount of time but it is something that users noticed enough that there was a, a developer workaround. I don't think we think enough about how many things we bind to when we are writing JavaScript. And especially as, like, I've started thinking about it a lot because I have basically removed jQuery from my vernacular. So I'm not <laughs> using jQuery as a means of, like, creating effects or events or behaviors. I'm writing it all vanilla JS, which means I'm writing a lot of like add event listener type stuff. Mm -hmm. And I start looking at like, as I organize my code, I try to put that stuff kind of together and I see how many event listeners I'm adding. And that's the stuff that we're talking about here. Think about how much are you using JavaScript for your menus for dropdown behavior? Are you using JavaScript um, for event handling on something like links um, or, or like simulated links or things like that? Um, depending on if you're building also a web app versus a website, that can also make a lot of, you know, if you're building a React app that has tons of JavaScript, obviously you're going to be a lot more sensitive because you've got all of this stuff, all of these React components that need, uh, where the word, and I'll jump ahead to a phrase here, hydration happens. <laughs> um, you laugh. That's that's what it's no, called. I know, I know. It just <laughs> always I I always picture like drinking water and stuff. I just yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, you're watering it. Yeah. Uh web if you use web components, that web component is useless until it is quote unquote hydrated. That's the JavaScript for the web component loading and binding everything to it to make that web component do what is necessary. So in those instances you'll see a lot of first input delay type stuff am i treating that fairly eric have i explained that well enough to not confuse people or have i made this way way worse the more javascript you have that's tying up the the main thread the longer your input delay is going to be and tim cadlick who's a performance engineer over at uh at catchpoint he released an article earlier this year in april um is the cost something like the cost of JavaScript frameworks? And so he goes into detail about how modern JavaScript frameworks can delay the initial interactivity of a website. Yeah. Um, 
So like scripting related CPU time in milliseconds sort of things. Um, I'll throw that article, Tim's article in the show notes as well. If anybody wants to go, uh, go read that, definitely check that out. Yeah. So let's talk about uh, FID in terms of how do I reduce it? How do I reduce the time uh, or reduce rather the, the delay to first interaction? Um, Obviously, I think everything we've already said about largest contentful paint applies here. You know, again, good performance techniques are going to help. You know, what's what's the phrase, right? Uh, you you when the tide rises, it it lifts all the boats. Um, there's some clever phrase. <laughs> right, that, rising tide lifts all boats. Yeah, that one. Yes, that that phrase. Um, by improving base performance, you know, technique, you're gonna inherently kind of affect all of this. So that one's, I think kind of there what uh what would you do eric if if somebody came to you and said hey we we ran a test you've got a search box on the main page of the notre dame website i don't know if you do uh but they can't use it because you've got javascript binding to it and it's taking way too long to load what would be your process of improving that but i mean yeah as far as first input delay it's really cutting back on the amount of javascript that would be thrashing the processor um, early on in the in the uh, site's load, um, anything that you can do to defer your JavaScript, because um, like if if your site loads and someone's immediately jumping up and starting to search, if they get something typed in and hit enter before your JavaScript loads, it should still work. It's the old right. it's the old you know progressive enhancement. Um, right. The autocomplete that's a nice to have. That shouldn't be a necessary thing. You shouldn't need JavaScript in order for search to work. It should submit and it should go to a page that can server-side render your results. Because JavaScript is what we call blocking, right? Like Absolutely. When you are, if you are just loading plain old JavaScript and you've thrown it in your head, it does what we call it. it and we use this phrase just you know in this previous se- segment, right? Uh, total blocking time. How much time does the browser spend stopped because it has to do the thing that's in front of it and javascript and css are two of those things that when the browser hits them it wants to download them and run them before it moves on yeah it has to parse download and parse the javascript before it can do anything one thing i want to do um when i rebuild the site at work is because it it will have a lot of javascript it just does um but when i set up my build tool chain i actually want to input two files I want to have the JavaScript that you have to have in order for the above the fold, quote unquote, stuff to work and everything else. And the most important (laughs) stuff will go ahead and load right away. And that file will be like a kilobyte at most, probably. And then everything else can be deferred down at the bottom of the page. Mm -hmm. And because for it, like you don't need all of our lead form code validation, error handling because you're not going to be able to fill out a form quickly enough and get to it before that's needed. So that is something I can offload and say, don't load that and run it yet. It's not even necessary on every page. So let's let that wait and linger. A couple other things you can do is, you know, obviously make sure things where you can are asynchronous. So you can, you know, if you've got fetch tasks, API calls, things like that, make them asynchronous. You'll shorten the time that it takes for things to to load because then it doesn't have to wait linearly for them um, and make functions small. And this is just like a 
good piece of, you know, advice for JavaScript in general. It makes it easier to test, it makes it easier to debug, and it makes it execute faster. Don't have a function that's 500 lines long. Uh, the last core web vital. Cumul cumulative layout shift, CLS. Oh. This is this is the one that I probably care about the most because I find it the most annoying. It yes, this this is definitely one that everybody has ran into, even if they don't know they've ran into it. But if you uh, you will know the problem. Um, again, for the last time, quoting Google, uh, CLS is a measurement of the largest burst of layout shift scores for every unexpected layout shift that occurs during the entire lifespan of a page. What? <laughs> you know, yeah, exactly. I. I wish, like, I know that this is supposed to be objective and everything, but certain layout shifts can be small, but subjectively more significant. Like the layout shift that when, like, the Facebook header is loading and all of a sudden an icon bumps the notifications thing to the right slightly, and then you tap that when you meant to tap something else. I swear they do that on purpose. I I read that definition and it's it, terribly hard to understand um cls is basically an abstract measurement it's between zero and one um and if you want to know the math i am not going to go into it because it is complicated and weird i'll have a link they have a page that explains like how you calculate it yes, based mm -hmm. on fractions and the amount of you know pixels things move relative to other things there's a whole equation, and it's not fun. You don't need to know it. It's not good podcast content. Yeah, it's not good podcast content. That is a very excellent point. It essentially um, boils down to things moving around, pushing things different places equals bad. Yeah. Yeah, users fixate, right? When you see a page, your eyes lock on things. And we're used to this notion of an image placeholder that's 640 by 480, right? And... If the browser, if you've put an image height and width on that, whether on the tag or at least in CSS, the browser knows to hold that space, that something is going to come in there that's that size. And so when it loads, it's not disruptive to the user's like visual threshold on that page. Because the user, for instance, with text, right, you could already be reading the page in some cases before like a big image loads. And if you're trying to read that page and the image loads and then shoves all that text around, suddenly you're jarred out of that flow. And that's disruptive. I mean, that's and that's, you know, a nice way of putting it. But thinking about improving that value, I mean, this feels easy, doesn't it? I mean, yes. And it's something we ran into quite a bit back when we were JavaScript lazy loading images, um, you know, mm. best of intentions. But if depending on how the threshold was set and how quickly the user was scrolling, if you did not have a inline width and height set on those placeholders, or even right. now if you're using loading equals lazy, then the browser can't, as you mentioned before, hold that space available. So mm -hmm. if you do put width and height, it, it will, you know, know that something is coming in on that spot. So as you're scrolling, it's not shifting things around. So that's, that's an easy one to do. You know, put the width and the height on things. Um, you could you could even do um, min width and min width and min height to ensure that it's always like a minimum of a certain size. If you don't know exactly the size it's going to be, but you know this image is always going to be at least 100 pixels. Yeah, 
that at least reduces the amount of shift then yeah. so yeah. you're if you can't avoid the shift you can at least minimize the shift mm-hmm. which is perfectly valid like i'm sure there are situations where maybe your cms doesn't give you the information about the image you know to work with and it's a user uploaded mm-hmm. image yeah and the thing to keep in mind about cls is it's the cumulative like through the lifetime of the page so it's yeah. not just, you know, like first contentful paint where it's like, boom, this is now what your measurement mm-hmm. is. It's like as the user scrolls down the page. Yeah. They even specifically say like you can, if it's reasonable that sometimes you have to insert something into the page, but you should always try to insert it after things, not before things um, that helps reduce that score as well. And something else that I thought was interesting was um, use animations where you can. Because the animations help reduce the amount of shift from frame to frame. So you don't go from a nothing to a huge something. And that helps reduce the overall cumulative score because the way they calculate it based on ratios, if your frame to frame movement is smaller, even if you move the same distance overall, the cumulative score is lower because the change between ratios from frame to frame is smaller. Again, the math is super weird. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. If you know you've got to have a banner ad, if you work on a content site and you have ads, then you very likely know how big those ads are. So don't let the JavaScript insert it and go from zero height to, you know, 80 pixel height. Hold the space. Have a div there that's 80 pixels tall and insert it inside of that, then there's no layout shift when that ad loads. Think mm-hmm. about placeholders that way and try to use them in context. Keep stuff from moving around. Eric, tools. I want to talk about tools to kind of round this thing out. We've mentioned several. Um, Lighthouse. What is Lighthouse? So Lighthouse is the tool that exists in Chrome DevTools. Uh, it will give you not just a performance score, um, but it will give you other things like accessibility, uh, best practices in SEO. And you can also do a PWA test, which is a progressive web app. It'll test how well your um, site meets Google's um, criteria for a progressive web app. Um, the interesting thing about Lighthouse, right, is it's also available as a command line tool. And so if yes. you wanted to script it if you wanted to write your own tool to maybe test a certain thing on a schedule you can download the cli and build it into a node script or something like that yeah and it's used Uh, by a lot of external tools um like we mentioned earlier uh speedlify uses uh uses the that uh api yeah so speedlify is an interesting one because i threw it on my list as well um speedlify uh is the product of zach leatherman um is it runs in Eleventy? It's a static site generator, and it basically lets you produce a website that gives you the ability to track all of these things um, over time to see how your scores change. I use it personally. I've got my own server set up, and I have a bunch of my work sites set in it. I've got a bunch of my personal sites set in it, and I just let it run. Uh, it's very cool though because it gives you. It does give you all your lighthouse scores. It gives you all your core web vitals, everything we've talked about. LCP, they have CLS, they have all uh, the other web vitals, first content, full paint, and all of that. Um, but you can, and also uh, uh, weight tracking. How much HTML do you have? How much CSS do you have? How much JavaScript do you have? And so it's just a really 
cool and useful way to track this information over time. Um, GT metrics is another one too, right? Um, and there are a lot of these. GT metrics is one. Um, Mose has one that are just like sites you can go in and just plug a URL in, and they'll they will give you a score on on a site, and they'll show you the 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 film strip. Um, Eric, you mentioned you know being able to see like. What does your site look like two seconds in, five seconds in? What changes? Where does stuff move? Things like that. Yeah. So just the Google tools, tools alone, you've got the uh, the Crux Report, Search Console, PageSpeed Insights, Lighthouse, um, web.dev slash measure is another one. Um, but as far as an external tool, my favorite definitely has to be webpagetest.org. Uh, you know, it's a free tool and it just gives you so much information you can dig down mm. through and uh, shape your traffic. You can tell it to block specific scripts. So one of the nice things you can do is if you want to test how your site would load with, uh, without some third party script, you can tell it, you know, block all requests to this domain and it will run the test and just mm. block them. Oh, that's cool. Another one is a single point of failure test. Um, what is the, there's a site. It's like, black hole or something if you send a request to it essentially just times out it like spins and spins until it times out Hmm. so you can like put your vendor scripts in that and it will you can see what kind of effect you have if the um if that script is going to time out another thing that people can uh, i've seen do with web page test is you can test changes so you can use remote server functions to actually modify the content of a site that you're testing in order to see how some changes would affect your overall score without actually making changes to the page itself. So if you wanted to, say, add a width and height to the images, you would write um, a regex or something to add those. Right. Um, and, and as you were talking, I went ahead and plugged Drunken UX into the web page test. And man, I don't want to tell you what we got. All I'm going to say is I'm really glad I'm doing a lot of work to redesign this site and make it fast. <laughs> so I loaded that up before the show too. So oh. <laughs> you don't have to tell me. Oh, it's not good. Folks, go plug your site into webpagetest.org. See what the results are. And while you're doing that, we will be right back. This episode of the Drunken UX Podcast is brought to you by the High Ed Web Association. Every year, High Ed Web puts on a national conference along with several regional conferences to talk about web development, web strategy, accessibility, digital marketing, and a whole lot more. This year, their conference is all online and it will be held October 4th and 5th. If you want to get a ticket to see what High Ed Web is all about, run by drunkenux.com slash heweb21. This year, they have Shannon Kaysen coming in from NPR to give their keynote, and there's going to be several tracks with multiple presentations each for you to find topics that are relevant to you. We can't recommend this conference highly enough. Both Aaron and I have been to High Ed Web and appreciate the content they, they create. I've presented there many, many times, 
and we both feel like that community and that group of people are some of the most forward-thinking web developers in our industry. So be sure to check out their conference. It's October 4th and 5th. You can get a ticket by visiting drunkenux.com slash heweb21. That's drunkenux.com slash heweb21. Eric, thanks again for taking so much time this evening to sit down with us and go over this. Um, I know we, we threw a, a few questions your way that I did not prep you for, so I commend your ability to think on the fly and weather my whims, as it were, uh, as uh, absolutely judicious payment for your time and suffering. Please take that microphone, take three or four minutes, whatever you need, and tell folks where they can find you, what you got going on, and literally anything else that you want them to know. So pretty much everything that I'm up to, you can find on uh, my website, ericrunyon.com. It's E-R-I-K-R-U-N-Y-O-N.com. Not C. Not E-R-I-C. Not C. No, the school that I went to up through my freshman year of grade school still spelled it with a C. And there were only 30 kids in my class. It was a town of 800 and they still couldn't get it right. Uh, so all of my socials and whatnot, my upcoming presentations are listed there. Uh, we'll, I'll actually be talking about uh, performance at Hyatt Web this year, uh, pre-recorded once again, unfortunately. Um, hopefully, hopefully 2022, Hyatt Web will be back in person. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's pretty much all I'm up to is putting together some performance presentations and very, very rarely writing content for the blog. <laughs> I ran my my uh, site that's running on Jekyll through web page test and LCP is one and a half seconds and CLS is 0. 0.06 that's pretty good Jekyll that's pretty darn good uh, I don't think we <laughs> mentioned it but 0. 0.25 is the threshold on CLS for good so anything below 0. 0.25 and you are yeah doing it right yeah Aaron my, my website is also Jekyll it's nice, right? Yeah. It's After Ruby. I, it's I've got used, liquid. Yeah. And, I mean, Markdown. It's all the good things. Yeah. I After using WordPress for well over a decade, um, it was a scary shift to move towards uh, static site generators. But, man, I love it. Love it. Love it. Um, you can tell us how much you love static site generators or how fast your site is. Uh, connect with us on Twitter, Facebook.com slash DrunkenUX, and on Instagram.com slash DrunkenUX podcast, or on chat, Discord.com slash DrunkenUX. Or the other way around. Discord.com slash DrunkenUX, right? The, the other way around. <laughs> sounds UX. good, but it's definitely slash the other Discord. way around. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you, you know, and as I'm sitting you here, you're me. talking about... You caught it, me. I, I'm hey, I'm listening. I'm, it doesn't matter. I've, I've th I'm through my Mortlock, but boy, I know my links. Uh, no, I was just sitting here thinking about uh, as you talk about like static site generators and Jekyll and, and performance and how that affects things. Eric and I were talking right before the show started about stuff, and I got <laughs> when we start thinking about like page speed and yeah, yeah. Uh, so I know I know what you're referring to because um, you know. A lot of groups aren't going to give you the leeway to spend time on this sort of thing. And so, Aaron, this may be especially relevant to you, mm -hmm. is um, if you want to consider making an argument to invest time and resources into improving performance, 
the best way to do that is to keep your personas close, but keep your users closer. (laughs) 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 Well done. That... I don't know if you two worked that out beforehand, but you got me. Hey, Aaron. Yeah. Bye bye. <laughs> Thanks, fellas. <laughs> oh, that was great. <laughs>